Alright, what's the crack everyone? It's Dermot here, bringing a bit of a change this week as me and Michael sat down with Kieran and Rob from the Corner Spady podcast for a crossover episode. You'll be hearing the first part now, focusing on European politics, and there's another part on their feed focused on Irish politics. I'll stick a link to the other part of this conversation, along with a link to Corner Spady in the episode description. For those not aware, Corner Spady is like a European politics and comedy podcast, so this week's episode is a bit of a change of pace, and a fair bit more lighthearted than some of our other stuff. So I hope you all enjoy the madness. I'll jump over to the recording now. Cheers. So, I have Michael joining me. How's it going? And we are delighted to be joined all the way from Berlin by Kieran and Rob from the Corner Spady podcast. Welcome, lads. Thank you for having us. I'm back. Prodigal son. <laughs> yeah, it's been six years. This counts as being back in Ireland. <laughs> Bringing it back home. Mm. Uh, yeah, so Corner Spady, for those who don't know, and for those who don't know, should definitely check it out. Mainly cover european politics at large so lads have come on to tell us what's happening in fortress europe this week <laughs> yes 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 fortress uh, uh the, okay so this is a good icebreaker i think because this will also enter the fact that we maybe go by a, a eurovision definition of europe <laughs> uh, which is the best definition um i'm really sad that turkey doesn't partake in eurovision anymore they started their own thing called Turkvision, which was <laughs> them and all the various Turkic people groups. Um, but then Turkey shot down that Russian uh, fighter yes. jet back in like 2013 or something. 2016, 2017? Yeah, something mm. like that. And that ended Turkvision. For anyone who doesn't know, most Turkic people groups are in Russia. So uh, yeah. yeah, they they pulled out a Turk vision after that. One of the great losses. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Turkey. <laughs> if that uh, if that rambling intro didn't get you, a new kind of vision, a new kind of Turk vision uh, is oh, know, yeah. perhaps to compensate. Yeah, Turk vision is coming back 2024 from the moon. Um, yeah, Turkey has announced uh, like today, yesterday, I believe that. The Turkish space program, which if you didn't know existed, I don't blame you, uh, is going to be on the moon by 2023, which I fucking love this concept. Two what, was years. This a statement? Yeah. A statement from the government? Yeah. From, this is happening? This is happening. To, at this point? Yeah. Is there any build up to this or this is a, an off the cuff announcement today? Uh, Michael, you did a bit of looking into this. Yeah. Yeah, so like, there's so many great details about this story. So the first thing, the reason they want to be on the moon uh, by 2023 is to celebrate like the 100th anniversary of like the Turkish Republic, which is (laughs) what did what did we do? (laughs) This is is what Ataturk would have wanted. Like, yeah, but um, then also um, it 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 turns out that like Erdogan has been like in negotiations and like cooperating with like Elon Musk and SpaceX to try and get this thing through um it's it's just so bizarre and then they also like in order to promote this in advance and they did this bizarre publicity stunt where they put like you know the whole thing recently with like those monoliths were like showing up all over the world like there was the one in utah or something (laughs) yeah like put one somewhere like near this like ancient um like this ancient site um put a monolith there that some farmer just like discovered and then like mysteriously disappeared a day or two later and then when like Erdogan was announcing the whole thing they had the monolith (laughs) as like the background to it 
I like I just like what, what what's going on? Like it's <laughs> and, and was that the whole background to the monoliths popping up international? Like I like the idea of it popping up <laughs> everywhere. Paris, like London, Spain, everything was just for Turkey space program, or was this just that one just for Turkey? I mean, I think it was just this one. Although, again, I I love the idea of like Erdogan and the AKP having like that much international reach, but alas. <laughs> That's like, yeah, that's like a weird soft power flex of just like you don't think we're everywhere, but we're placing monoliths in the middle of fucking bush Australia. It wouldn't be the um, first time. I, I remember they Turkey like did some flash mobs in New York City back in 2016. Wait, what? Yeah, what? You, 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 we wait. We can't get into it now, but there was a, there was some <laughs> kind of synchronized dancing and like red T-shirts. Um, I believe like a flyover mm. carrying some. A- AKP slogan. Oh, Jesus. Wouldn't be the first time. This is the first time I've Googled Turkish flash mob. <laughs> <laughs> you don't do that yeah, regularly? 2015 in, in uh, uh, <laughs> Times Square. Beautiful. To promote a campaign to reconcile Turkish and Armenian relations over the next hundred years to come. So they have what? they have form for this type of thing of just doing like what? weird spectacles what? to announce a new governmental policy. Okay. Okay, this is maybe the dumbest way to like, this is the dumbest first question I have about this. Turkey wants to reconcile with the Armenian population. Do it in Los Angeles. That's where they all are. <laughs> come on. Yeah, I love the idea of guerrilla marketing for government programs. Mm. That's just like a fun new thing of just like, hey, we put a monolith in the middle of the country and then you just approach the monolith and it's like, yeah, that was marketing for, um, did you know you can get like government <laughs> forms translated into your native language if you want? You don't have to just have them in English. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we put the monolith there. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is already so far from a lot of the Russia. Right <laughs> like, all right, I'm sorry for people there. Monday morning in Ireland, you didn't get, you weren't expecting <laughs> dose of chaos. But here we go. Um, my favorite thing about the the Turkish space program and their plan to go to the moon in two years um, mm. is much cut. The fact that this is all basically driven out of spite um, because they announced this yesterday. Um, in time for the UAE's first satellite getting into orbit around Mars. Okay. So this is just Turkey pissed off at the United Arab Emirates, um, which I find very funny. Another space race. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Every conflict that's happening in the world right now, they are on opposite sides of it. Just because... But like, is is there something like in the water at the Middle East in the Middle East at the moment? Like, or are all the vanity projects just getting more and more bizarre? Right? Like, so you have all the space stuff, but then you have like Saudi Arabia building that like big line city as well. Neom, Neom, yeah, <laughs> the line. Yeah, for people who don't know, like the Saudi yeah. like administration unveiled this like what Michael said vanity project of just creating a city in the middle of. I don't, I don't know what desert being, and it's just going to be a line with all these like outrageous things that a kid would have thought of, like a city with uh, mech dinosaurs and, and a fake moon. Yeah, fake moon, like anti gravity rooms and light speed rail and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I discovered that project because it was originally pitched as Saudi Arabia wants to make a new Hong Kong because it's like it's going to be on the Red Sea. It'll be close to like the Egyptian border, the the, the Israeli border. So that's like a good nexus of like trade, presumably. 
but that was also uh, relevant for you guys. That was when I uh, I found that because I found out in uh, the mid '90s there was a plan to move the entire population of Hong Kong to Northern Ireland. Um, what? Yeah, it was like proposed by one lord in the House of Lords, but that was his solution for like right. China <laughs> getting control of Hong Kong again, and also his solution for the troubles because we'll enter a third population into the conflict. Oh, because that was the issue. There wasn't enough population, like interposed <laughs> communities. Yeah, like uh, like the the you know the 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 Protestant population will be like completely overwhelmed by a new atheist Hong Konger population. (laughs) 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 Like, like the, the question of why this stuff sort of happens, like it is, it is immense spectacle politics that we were talking about. And especially Mm. at this time, because there's no guarantee that in two years that the coronavirus is finished or under control or anything like this. Or that this is a sensible thing to be diverting like resources towards or trying to sell to people. I, I don't know what drives it, but there you do get that parallel of like how just how bad things are melting down in the in some countries. Oh, absolutely. Like even here, and then like also trying to counterpose that to like, oh, we're going to go to the moon and build tallest building ever, or do this and do that. Mm. The 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 Turkish like idea of going to the moon in two years, which I'll point out, there is no coronavirus on the moon, so. Well, yes. The moon <laughs> variant of the coronavirus is going to be something. Moon yeah. variant. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no like it's 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 great because turkey has burnt all these geopolitical bridges they don't have anyone to turn to to like make this space program a reality um the only two countries in the region that have done this is like the uae which like the uae has a i'm doing the quote marks gesture has a space program which is they bought Mm. an american satellite and strapped it to a japanese rocket there was very little like united arab emirates things involved and then the other country that has has a space program in the region is Israel, and they basically had one mission, and that was to get a lunar lander on on the moon, but they crashed it into the moon in 2019. So, I mean, Turkey's at least they half got as it good. there. Yeah, <laughs> it's there. <laughs> um, but I, I'm willing to put out there that maybe like the military and like propulsion technology in Israel is probably a little bit further ahead than Turkey just due to their like <laughs> insane rocket budget. Um, yeah, that, well, okay. <laughs> that, I was, was going to say links to America and stuff like that. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Both play into each other. Um, so yeah, that, that was a little, that was a little amuse bouche of what's happening in Europe. Yeah. I, I think that like is a nice icebreaker sets the tone yeah. for what people <laughs> were to be expecting um not exactly europe new <laughs> european news but there is actually uh, a european country with a bit of news that you just want to talk about and that's italy yes. i know italy is like a recurring focus point for your podcast and also like a lot of podcasts all that view like italy as kind of like a weather vane for where uh, european politics is going like you would have had a kind of right populist or celebrity right-wing populist movement under Berlusconi and obviously that's like a precursor to the Trumpian style of right-wing politician that you get uh, like internationally now of being like very well-groomed in presentation but in like a very disconcerting way uh, but they've had a bit of like a, a shake-up at the moment in their government what's the crack there <laughs> yes the boy is back um so you're right to talk about like Berlusconi as this spectacle because 
he released a video um, of him just like yeah. gently coming well, out of his house it, um, and waving with, to the camera on his yeah, way to, um, you know, give the go ahead for this new government. And the entire time I was watching that, I was just, um, I felt like I was looking at the human equivalent of a Potemkin village. The the <laughs> <laughs> the guy, t- he is like he's had so much like plastic and like bone replacement surgery that he is basically as a recurring joke in our podcast he is a real doll um just a living (laughs) real doll um he is more machine now than man so what he's going off to actually do is uh something that's been great which is uh the italian government collapsed due to the ego of one man who we'll get to later um and now a new government has been uh, uh well as of time of recording has basically been made and that is being led by former ECB head of the European Central Bank, uh, mm. Mario Draghi. Super Mario. Super, when did that nickname start? I disagree with this. <laughs> <laughs> what, that he's not super? Or, I, or no I just don't like the video game comparison. Like, you know, it's, it's implying that, like, all of Italy's problems is due to, like, a large Bowser problem in the <laughs> south or something. Um <laughs> I don't know. It cheapens the whole thing, but yeah. because for for people who don't know, where like what's Mario Draghi's background? We are planning on doing like a whole episode about Mario Draghi as a person, but mm. uh, and Nick is working on that. Who's not on this episode right now? But uh, Draghi is former ECB European Central Bank during the like the bad years. To that, well, okay, it's the bad yeah. years now. Two thousand and eight. <laughs> the he was yeah. there during He's, the euro crisis. He, he is widely like in some circles credited with saving, you know, mm. the crisis. Yeah. So. I think yeah. a lot of the the rhetoric in in Italy is that now he's you know the savior is returning to to save Italy from its next crisis. Can um, I just ask as well? Like, am I right in saying that like Draghi was kind of the impetus for like pushing Berlusconi out in the first place to set up the first um, technocratic government? Because I don't know, like that that video that you were talking about there. Like, I almost interpreted that as like Berlusconi being like, "Well, look who's come crawling back!" Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that video looks like he hasn't emerged from his house in years and it kind of reminds me of like what i imagine truman from the truman show like coming out <laughs> as because he like timidly walks out automated hand waving uh, and then just returns the, the it fades to like black it's just a, a extremely disturbing video mario draghi in this comparison would be like ed harris's character in a in a in a like t- in a compound in brussels watching him being like okay yes. <laughs> <laughs> more storm get rid of it um, um yeah. yeah michael it's um perfect to bring that up because berlusconi uh, resigned in 2011 and basically it, it's in a lot of ways a repeat of what's happening now in the middle of a, a an economic crisis um then the eurozone crisis now um, the coronavirus crisis, in which has greatly affected the economy of Italy. And then Draghi, um, as head of the ECB, was instrumental in pushing uh, a, a new coalition headed by uh, a different technocratic economist, Mario Monti, who was a prime minister of Italy from 2011 to 2013. Um, what's interesting here is that Berlusconi... Uh, again, someone else we've done a whole episode on. <laughs> there's there's plenty to dig into there. And he wasn't doing himself any favors at that time. Several criminal investigations you could choose from. Oh, yeah. And that that all was part of his downfall. Um, 
but the fact that it coincided with this convenient, well, we need someone, uh, a stable hand, someone we can trust at the head of the, the Italian government, um, certainly led Berlusconi to claim many times that he was forced out. Um, but then everyone else could say, yeah, well, you, you kind of deserved it, this or that. Uh, I just pulled up, I'd, I'd like to read it very quickly. Um, if anyone knows uh, or remembers Timothy Geithner, the U.S. Treasury Secretary under Obama, uh, spearheaded the 2008 Wall Street bailout. Um, he said in a 2014 memoir um, that referring to uh, G20 or just before G20 in 2011, I'm quoting from him now, <clears throat> quote, at one point that fall, a few European officials approached us with a scheme to try to force Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi out of power. They wanted us to refuse to support IMF loans to Italy until he was gone. We told the president, that is Obama, about the surprising invitation, but as helpful as it would have been to have better leadership in Europe, we couldn't get involved in a scheme like that. We can't have his blood on our hands. <laughs> of course, right. Berlusconi <laughs> would resign and they would get a technocratic leader uh, in Italy for the next two years. Yeah, I love, I love the... Uh Mention of blood. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just to clarify, Geithner, he was saying like another quote he said uh, just later in the article was, uh, "It was cool, interesting, but I said no about like about the plan." <laughs> I would love to, but you know, we're we're so far away. I love how um, it's like he responds to like, "Do you kind of want to underhand and underhandedly overthrow the government of Italy?" Uh, the same way I respond when someone asks me if I want to go bouldering. I've been reading a lot about that. Coups, all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Berlusconi's back waving ahead, but he's like, uh, I think he's technically banned from like politics in Italy, uh, which is why he's an MEP now. He's a member of the European mm. Parliament. Um, but my favorite star of this whole show, um, beyond Draghi, um is Matteo Renzi, former prime minister of Italy, oh, who yeah. uh, I put out on Twitter before, and I don't know the legality of this, but I would really like to have Cornish Beatty merch, which is just his face on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> For listeners should look up his face because something about him, he looks like a Doing he it. has like, like a child or like some kind of cartoon character. There's something about his face. Benjamin Buttoned ass face. Infant face, adult hair <laughs> relationship going yes. on. Yes. So have that face in mind while Kieran reads you some of his uh, his his choice quotes. <laughs> so to give the context, this whole scandal started because he split off from uh, the party he used to be the head of, Partito Democratico, uh, PD. Uh, they're your kind of center left but like neoliberalized party of Italy, um, mm. Blairite, Labour, Clintonian Democrats, that kind of thing. Um, he split off for that and he started his own party that's called Italia Viva, um, which is great. It was originally going to be called Italy for Yes, which I think is a better name. Uh, it's a bit <laughs> stupid it is. Um, he started this tiny fraction of this party where he tried to become Italy's Macron, like the centrist savior. It didn't work because the center collapsed in Italy in like 1989. Um, so that's great. But he was able to pull out of the coalition that was like currently governing Italy because, well, no one really knows why exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it has resulted in all this chaos <laughs> where now a new bureaucrat has been brought in to like lead the government. And here's 
here's his choice quotes as as uh, as rob said uh, this is all mostly from an interview with him for the new york times it was a masterpiece of Italian politics, <laughs> referring to his own maneuvers. Uh, this was my strategy. I did it alone with 3%. That 3% is referring to how desperately unpopular he is within <laughs> Italy. Um, that 3% is for his party. I think he polls lower himself. Okay, quote, it's all a game of parliamentary tactics. And let's say that working for five years in the place where Machiavelli worked helped a little. I was like, that's, don't, don't say that about yourself, man. <laughs> and then this other quote from uh, um, earlier in, I guess maybe like late last month. I'm not exactly sure when this happened, but. Um, but dur- during the crisis, yeah, during which, the which should crisis. be noted that like, like while Italy is, you know, the government is falling apart. <laughs> Uh, he, he he takes a little trip. He takes a little trip uh, to Saudi Arabia and then is quoted as saying, I believe Saudi Arabia can be the center of a future neo-Renaissance. <laughs> so again, no doubt influenced by like the same, like just money that's floating around that yeah, we talked yeah. about earlier, funding all of these things. Like when he says neo-Renaissance, he's talking about the, the mechanized dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's not all... Is that not what a Da Vinci sketch is? The mechanized dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> That's what he would have wanted. Can I just ask, like, I, I know you've explained, like, what his deal is, but, like, no, really, what is his deal? Like, what, what, what's he trying to do here? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> like, like, is it collapse Italian government, question mark, question mark, question mark, profit? Like, what, like what's going on? Um, and, like, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting, like, you mentioned Macron there, because, like, those quotes, like, in terms of their kind of like unhinged megalomania, like are very, very Macron vibes, I think. Like maybe like on steroids, but like, I don't know, thinking back to when Macron was like first selected, he referred to like the Jupiterian presidency and was like comparing (laughs) himself to like emperors and stuff. Like that, it's it's those kind of vibes. Yeah, the man has a very high opinion of himself. I believe there's a quote from... Uh, like the head of political science in the University of Bologna said, the only constant in Italian politics is Renzi's need for attention, um, <laughs> which is like, you know, savage, good burn. <laughs> but like <laughs> the, um, okay, so the actual material deal I could probably explain, which is this crisis was basically pulled at the exact moment that Italy would have received stimulus from the European Union. And Conte, the former bureaucrat who was put in charge, which, by the way, Conte was, like, the most popular man in Italy. Like, Italy loved him. And, like, uh, if he started his own centrist party, if polls are to believe, would be polling at, like, 15%. Compared that to... Right. Compared that to Renzi's uh, 3%. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So there's some ego there as well. Um, But... It's kind of believed that Conte would have probably done something more redistributive right, than okay. yeah. Draghi. Yeah. yeah, he's done some minimal um, social welfare um, acts, especially under the um, you know during the crisis, um, citizens' incomes, um, you know, uh, freezing layoffs. Um, I want to. There's one article written by uh, the. Uh, sociologist Paolo Jabaudo in um, a recent Jacobin, where he basically argues that. Um, Renzi basically got what he wanted, which is a technocrat in charge who's going to stop, you know, any kind of even like a little bit left social welfare. And that um, I guess the other context for this, just to clarify what Garen is saying, is that there's a 200 million, I think is the is the amount euro 
recovery fund from the EU to Italy. And the question is, and I mean, the next prime minister is going to decide how to spend it. Right. Okay. So if Renzi can't get it, then at least Conti's not going to get it. Yeah. So it is like, I don't know what Draghi will do because Draghi is like, well, we have his track record, but he's also like an incredibly quiet person. So since he's retired as ECB president, he hasn't been saying like, oh, if I was in charge of Italy, I'd be doing this, blah, blah, blah. But like Conte would have probably done something along the lines of half-hearted great like New Deal or something like that of like jobs right, programs okay. and not handing over the region of Calibria entirely to the mafia. Because <laughs> um, that's who fills the gap, unfortunately, in Southern Italy. Um my other favorite, my last little quote from Renzi before really moving on is um, Renzi does acknowledge that he's desperately unpopular. Um, but, and I'm going to just read from the New York Times piece. Mr. Renzi said his near rock bottom popularity, quote, absolutely gave him the freedom to maneuver because instead of fearing losing support, I was worried about losing the opportunity. So no one likes me, but it's good, actually. <laughs> you can only go up from here. Yeah. <laughs> this is like... Can't get any worse. This is the, the kid in school who, like, didn't have a school bag, but, like, brought a briefcase kind of vibes being like, I'm not laughing at... You laugh at me because I'm different, but I laugh at you because you're all the same kind of vibes. Yeah, well, just... I think this is from the same uh, Jacobin article I referenced, but he was... I don't know. Before he triggered, um, so he resigned, and then Conti resigned. I believe was the was the sequence. Forced Conte to resign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he said right before he did this, he visited uh, someone in jail, which was the former senator Denise Vedini, whose daughter is the fiance of Matteo Salvini. So th- there's just this is, I mean, they they call it like a spy novel. Like this is Italian politics unfolding in a moment of crisis we'll uh, get to matteo silvini next because the real reason this is kind of a crisis is the italian population or at least those who are probably like politically active really really don't want any of the political leaders to support draghi like a great deal of the political parties that are like major political parties currently um are in power because they opposed like European austerity because they opposed the response of like 2008-2011 namely five star movement which is like the biggest in Italian parliament right now but they've been like plummeting in the polls for years now I think they're the fourth most popular in the polls Um, and what are like five star movements kind of roots because I know they have like a strange are they the, the digital party or yeah, they launch themselves as like a kind yeah. of beyond politics platform. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What has that reverted back to? Is that still like, is it like just centrist politics or what are we dealing with here in the five star movement? The problem with the five star movement, I think I was talking about this with Rob earlier, is they kind of don't really know what they are anymore. Um, a lot of their like base were people who were like disappointed with the neoliberal term that the center left party in Italy went under. Uh, Matteo Renzi actually and um kind of fled to this party but this party was also like weirdly anti-establishment so there was like this huge anti-vaxxer wing of the party which has now started their own party because they believe five-star movement is cucked or something um by like big vaccine and it was this incredibly weird uh, coalition of like some decent left activists like Alessandro Di Battista uh and then like weird backbiting where the anti-corruption but were very corrupt candidates 
politicians and stuff like that. They kind of like, I think the only thing they really still champion, although they heavily put their thumbs on the scales, is direct democracy. Okay. And how does that operate? Was that the thing about like apps and like it's all on oh no they they wish it was an app it's like a it's like i don't know it's like a myspace skin uh it's like an online (laughs) web portal type thing called uh rousseau Uh, because this company was co-founded by a comedian and then the other founder was an e-commerce um advisory company run by like one guy um and now, as far as I understand, that's just become like a bribe channel, effectively, for that e-commerce advisory technology solutions company to get bigger and bigger clients and contracts. Can I ask as well, because like my understanding at the time when they were initially elected a few years ago was certainly there was like a lot of hand wringing about like you talked about there being left wing activists there there as well. But there is also like a kind of right wing populist element to it, like a quite anti-immigrant element like not as anti-immigrant as like Salvini and, Le- and the the Liga but it's, it was that the case as well um yes mainly because it was a very confused movement in general but I'd also say that back in the initial like anti-populist um media storm that you were getting about like Le Pen and Geert Wilders in the Netherlands and things like that um most mainstream media i think dropped the ball with italy i think they focused way too much on five-star movement and fucking la lega snuck in there as the actual terrifying um right-wing party yeah just two points i think the five-star movement um something we maybe haven't emphasized is that they have a reputation of being eurosceptic i mean this is always vacillating back and forth right so maybe a bit of their anti-establishment I mean, compared to, I don't know if we said it explicitly, but like Matteo Renzi and the Macron comparisons, very much a, a certain kind of um, pro-European, whatever whatever that means. And so maybe along those lines, Five Star Movement um, has some degree of, you know, uh, you know, decentralized participatory democracy, these kinds of ideas. Although, as Kieran said, it is, you know, very... It goes in a lot of different directions. And the, the other fact is that in 2018, um, they, they, you know were in the government coalition with La Lega. So that alone is, I think, was a cause for concern for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically what caused them to drop in the polls, is working with La Lega. Uh, similarly, they before this government collapsed, they were working with PD, Partido Democratico, the like neoliberalized left. That also caused them to drop in the polls because the people who are the base of Five Star Movement Think of La Lega as too right wing and think of PD as too establishment. But I feel like Kieran, this um, five stars reaction to the to the Draghi question like exemplifies a lot of these trends perfectly between leadership and the base. Yeah, because like the base, if like PD is too establishment for the base, Mario fucking Draghi is definitely too establishment for the base. Uh, the bureaucrat from Brussels is not exactly, even if he is Italian, isn't going to win over too many hearts and minds. Um but they did, as kind of required by the statutes of their party, did put this to an online vote. Because again, the whole thing of like five-star movement politicians is they're not meant to like vote of their own accord. They get a vote, like they have their constituency vote and tell them what to do. Um, but they put the thumb on the scales by asking the most leading fucking question in the world. Do you want me to read the question that was posited okay. to, the, to the base? <clears throat> 
Do you agree that the five-star movement supporting a technical political government with a super ministry for the green transition, which defends the main achievements of the movement, a five-star movement, with the other political forces indicated by no nominee <laughs> Premier Mario Draghi? Um, <laughs> that was translated by David Broder, who is like Jacobin's main guy on Italy. So I trust his translation. <laughs> but yeah, that's... that's uh, it passed. Yeah, oh, it passed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still not sure what that. There's, there's too many clauses in that sentence. Like, I'm still Wait. unsure what it means. There's like 12 <laughs> commas in it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it passed with 59% amongst their base, which is like, uh, I think some people, especially like Financial Times, the Economist, are like, oh, overwhelming support for Draghi, but that's actually the lowest any of those votes have gone. Uh, there was a higher support for Five Star Movement going into bed with La Lega or with Partido Democratico under the Conte government, this is the lowest any of the should we go into this government votes have gone. And so who else has gone into the government? Is it like basically the same parties as last time, just not uh, with Conte or... More, I believe. I think it's all the major parties except the far-right uh, Fratelli uh, d'Italia. Yeah, it's basically... So the reason Berlusconi was like, you know demonstrating the future of robotics by gently walking out of his house and waving at everyone <laughs> was because uh, his party, Forza d'Italia, uh, is backing this government. They are at least conventional centre-right, but they've fallen from grace. Then La Lega has supported it as well, which has some people very confused, but I don't find confusing at all. Um, the only party for the previous government that's not on board with this is the... There was a left party or a left coalition mm. that backed out, um, rightfully so in my opinion. They were a merging of several different left-wing parties and some of them have split and are going to run under separate elections next time. So that's probably why people aren't really mentioning them. They're quite small now. And um, as Rob said, Fratelli dell'Italia, or Brothers of Italy, uh, which is one of the three Mussolini continuation parties of Italy, um, are benefiting greatly from being basically the only major opposition to this. Of course, like that's how it runs generally. Um, where you have a cross-party coalition, excluding only the far right, it only props up like the far right party as the anti-establishment or anti-governmental like movement, and you obviously see a swelling there. Uh, <laughs> so it 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 never works out, and Italy has a has like a history of uh, like lesser evilism yeah. of voting in like like light liberal parties that just open up the way for the far right to move into. So given that then why why didn't the Liga La Liga also refuse to support the government because I would have thought they would have been in the perfect place to to benefit from dissatisfaction with it if they didn't like. So for me there's two things there. The first is something we talk about in our podcast quite a bit which is there's this perception, apparently, amongst like liberal commentariat across Europe, that uh, because La Lega was kind of first introduced to like popular imagination as this anti-EU party, they kind of view them as rigidly so that. Um, but we've talked about this often on the podcast. But like most of these originally Eurosceptic parties across Europe, including like National Rally in France and things like that, did see what happened to UKIP and Nigel Farage, and they're like actually no we'll we'll go along with like hijacking this project from now like the lega are happy to like participate in european politics and 
take it over and kind of shape it into their Christian Europe, um, you know, Fortress Europa. There's a lot of things about the EU project that they're very happy with if you look close enough. Um, so, yeah, they're willing to do that. That's kind of like your other conventional one. Uh, the more long-term and tactical thing is um, Italy has this thing in electoral politics called pre-made coalitions. So you basically run with other parties before, like, during the election. There will be, like, one box you can tick for three right-wing parties all working together. And that's what La Lega does. They work with Forza dell'Italia, uh, Berlusconi's party, and Fratelli dell'Italia. So they actually have nothing to lose electorally from this because even if Fratelli dell'Italia becomes the star of that pre-made coalition, next election, which is 2022, I believe, um, they'll be they'll ride along in their coattails. They'll have absolutely no problem with it. And they're still, La Liga, while they're going down in the polls, they're still the largest party by popular support in Italy at the moment. So so what does this mean for like Italy at large then? Like what are we in for? And I know you just kind of view Italy as like a kind of a foreboding <laughs> uh, situation at the moment. Sure. I think that it seems like basically a done deal with the Draghi oh, prime yeah. ministership. Um, uh, you have something written here, Kieran, which I didn't see that uh, Lega was looking at a, with a Draghi presidency in 2022. Mm, yeah, something yeah, I yeah. could certainly imagine. I think... It's less so that what happens in Italy will happen everywhere else in Europe, but that so many of the dynamics, like if you want to understand a lot of the dynamics at play in European politics, they're just present in such like extreme <laughs> intense forms in Italy, whether it's yeah Silvio Berlusconi um, becoming every day more of a parody of himself. And Matteo Renzi, I mean, talk about like a neoliberal backstabbing, you know, megalomaniac. There you go. Look no further. <laughs> Um, and so the way I look at it is that Italy, I mean, the history of Italian politics, I feel like, especially under even let's take the Cold War just to start quickly, like the fact that anti-communism and preventing the rise of a, you know, relatively strong and organized left wing movement was such a cohering force for much of establishment and conservative politics in Italy that going from that and, and then once the Cold War is over, between cycles of either technocratic government or like right-wing populist government under Berlusconi, like those cycles, I think are just a, a more, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. It's it's not unlike cycles of political, um, not unlike political cycles that are happening in other places in Europe, but just Italy is just such a clear example of these dynamics. And, and is that like due to, like I know Italy's uh, like, workers movement at large unions and things like that have been completely pushed back in the same way that you would have seen internationally um but they're coming from a higher place in a lot of uh in a lot of instances but it's it's led to a similar hollowing out and now you just have that kind of and we're going to talk about this in the irish um irish episode or the irish focused episode that we're going to do after this in that like even in ireland you have a reduction of a reduction of the main parties function down to like a middleman between like capital whether that's taking place between uh, like actual capital in air instance it's like international multinationals and the publicans are like the publican industry so pubs uh, and 
and things like that and you just have the the parties become like middlemen and politics like gets raised at a level above like popular participation or the influence of like the working class at large is that a similar thing in italy that leads to this yeah i mean i guess the the thing that with italy is that happened in italy relatively a long time ago i guess yeah. like uh, uh this this kind of aspect of political shift pretty much happened when the cold war was end like ended that's uh kind of the function of like the whole clean hands trial um yeah where like after well i don't know how, how how much i can get away with this but some people would say after the cia was no longer interested mm. in controlling italian politics <laughs> uh, to, uh, by the way you can find out more about our podcast by going to operationglad.io um, <laughs> the the it all kind of fell apart and it all kind of became spectacle and there's only so much like you can do in that space so you get you get your celebrity politician you get political parties that even though the far right like la lega's party is relatively scary they basically just represent like italian capital now that's nervous about european capital like that's that's basically what all these kind of like far right parties in europe have become is like representatives of um yeah the the italian capital class that is uh paranoid that they won't cut it in a european capital class that was like a lot of the funding behind Brexit was even from that. It was like, um, yeah, it would be very similar. Like that split in the capitalist class of what benefits half of it doesn't yeah. benefit the other. And in fact, like can cut, can damage it. Yeah. Like a uh, Dyson, uh, your guy was a big Brexit, Brexit guy. And that was like, if you just dug into that for five seconds, you could find out that basically the EU was constantly saying, you know, Dyson vacuum cleaners are incredibly energy inefficient. And right. Okay. Yeah. There was all yeah. these German, um, vacuum cleaner companies that were kind of like outselling him now slowly and stuff mm. like that um <laughs> and that's kind of what like this far right party has come to represent in italian politics and that's versus your kind of neoliberalized center party that will be like happy to work with like german capital american capital british capital dutch capital whatever yeah so what's the omen for italy what, what's it showing I don't know. I, I'm guessing that like various parts of the south of Italy will just be sold to the highest bidder. Um, <laughs> so uh, positive. <laughs> yeah. It's all very positive. Yeah. So get yeah, your we, bets. We in, often uh, we often uh, disappoint our listeners by having no positive uh, conclusions yeah. <laughs> to come out of things. <laughs> One thing I will say, uh, just that I forgot to mention, is that the Five Star Movement. I don't know what their future will hold, but something like the Five Star Movement. I think a lot of analysis is focused on. Maybe how it's this, I don't know, unique fixture of Italian politics. Oh, like, whoa, would you look to that? They came to power. But something like the Five Star Movement, maybe not exactly the same, maybe more right wing, uh, is something that has been pointed out, like this kind of startup party could come in Europe in the wake of, you know, anti-lockdown protests. This strange in, in Germany, they're called like Kveadenka because it's like supposed to be this cross of like different parts, like not typical typical right-wing voters, a lot of Greens and left voters too who support these protests. And there could be some weird mix of, yeah, participatory politics and just something to come out of that. Um, and, and maybe we could look to Italy for, I don't know, at least some sign of what that might look like in the future. And again, you have like, let's say the, the French yellow vests, which is also going from a right to a left, perhaps a shift over time. Um, there's there's something there um, for 
I don't know anyone else interested in the future of uh, what these uh, the future of European politics. I would say. Yeah, I think I think you see that phenomenon a lot. Like there's a lot of frustrations, obviously, with the way nearly all of these countries are being run uh, on different bases, and that manifests itself in different ways, country to country. But frustration with uh, like the influence of business or the influence of the EU, I think is a common, like it's, it's common in all of them. And we're seeing it uh, in a different way here in Italy. Like I, th- I wanted to ask you though, like, cause obviously the scope of your podcast is far, far bigger than theirs. Uh, you deal with European politics on a whole and just like how you decide what you focus on. Like if you try to connect it together, if there even is a way to connect a lot of things together, obviously people, the perception from some and like i think i share that perception is that in some ways european politics are a bit more uniform than like the anglo sphere uh countries but i don't know if that's true or if you like if that's an influence of the eu which i know you don't really focus on too much because of your own perception of it or whatever um yeah i, I can talk about that uh just a little bit before i switch to rob because like um i don't know once i i've been out of the anglosphere for a while and now i'm just like yeah it's they're all the fucking same (laughs) (laughs) it's gotten to a bit of like uh once you're outside of it you see like the common thread of i mean us like they're really still trying to sell like neoliberalism to like the french and germans um Mm. which it's way more given in like the English speaking countries. Now it's just like the way the politics is, but like Macron is like shaping up to be like Francis Thatcher, you know, like almost Mm. 40 years after the fact. Um, So there's like, there's differences there, but like, yeah, we try to compare things because we're aware we have like an international audience and we know the people who like listen to our podcast are interested in like the bullshit that happens in Estonia. But sometimes we will have to relate it back to like, an American movement or a German political party or something they can understand a bit better. Um, as regards to like the EU, uh, there's two reasons we don't talk about that too much, which is uh, the more serious reason, which is I think a lot of people can think the EU is in control of everything, which is like, right. Uh, I don't think it's true. Like I still think it's like the member States that make up the power yeah. of mm-hmm. the EU. So like all of them or a select few? <laughs> uh, some have more sway than others. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I say from right. Berlin, um, for sure. But like, I don't know. I, I think Hungary and Poland have kind of proven that you can like really gum up the works. Yeah. Um, okay. If you have the right ducks in an or- in order. Um, but then like at the same time, the other, the other thing is despite what like EU flag emoji Twitter tries to do, Brussels bubble politics is incredibly boring and I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, uh, Ursula von der Leyen is not epic. Stop saying she is. I don't <laughs> See, the nice thing, like, for rupture, we haven't done much focus on Europe. It's going to be a bit mad that this is going to be an intro because, like, Turkey and Italy and yeah. this and that, obviously. Um, yeah. But the EU, like, I think it's perceived as a technocratic mess. Um, and, like, the reflection is true to... Uh, like a very real extent so it is tough i suppose to pull out the political points yeah i think the other thing as well is like so much chat about the eu and ireland anyway has just been like everything's been about brexit and just like nobody wants to listen to any more brexit chat like is the understandable 
Well, I just like to emphasize if it's not clear so far, we usually just pick the funniest things. That <laughs> um, I mean, I think that we're all we all consider ourselves leftists, but I think that we try to. I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, but in a way, you kind of have to demystify things, right? Like, oh, it's not big bad EU, you know, in Brussels controlling everything. There's like complicated relationships, and you know, and uh, I think a lot of what we do is just try to. I don't know. Read between the lines, maybe. Try to bring up some things that other people may have uh, not heard about. Um, and of course, we we don't do that in any particularly uniform way. We are definitely biased towards things that we might know about, or one of us might know um, wants wants to like basically add into the group. But hopefully, all together, we can do something like that, like a bit of a you know scatter shot. What's going on in Europe, and try to just I don't know present a what's the right word <laughs> counter narrative um yeah try it, not to take things too seriously but yeah. uh, go through it with everybody <laughs> i think there is there's people on the right who kind of view the eu as this machiavellian kind of structure and then there's just us there being like no nah, it's actually way dumber than that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like wasn't wasn't ursula von der Leyen like a, a wine queen this very cursed concept that Germany what? has. Oh yeah, I have to. I have to check. Was she, she was she? She was a wine queen, wasn't she? She was a wine queen again. Yeah. As in which? <laughs> it, it's like it's like Germ. It's like rural German equivalent of like the Rose of Tralee. Uh, okay, right. For the Irish right. listeners, it's just like this. It's the lovely girls competition, but you're from a wine producing region I'm, of Germany. I mean, um, there is a current Fine Gael MEP who did literally win the Rose of Tralee. Oh, so, yeah. like, beautiful. Yeah, yes. MEP as well. Yeah. Which is, uh, oh, and she released it. Like, this This is a complete, like, non secular, but she, in, in her for her election campaign, she just, like, released it in 2019. She just released this video, which was just, like, all this <laughs> these images of, like, 90s culture oh yes Rob you love this woman do you like Game Boys (laughs) if you're a 90s kid you'll vote for me if you like Pokemon you'll love the neoliberal (laughs) politics of Fina Gale (laughs) like that was that was the ad I had to send Rob for Rob to instantly understand everything wrong with Irish (laughs) it helped Uh, I just want to uh, just clarify that it was Julia Klöckner the head of agriculture in in Germany who was the wine queen although Uh, personally I do think Ursula von der Leyen would have been a very um, competent winner and she would have represented mm, yes. the German wine industry very well. It's easy to mix that up because clearly um, like the wine queen to head of the European Commission is such a, a well-tread path. <laughs> they have uh, an equal you, amount of power, yes. Well, you could have assumed <laughs> it, yeah. Revolving yeah. <laughs> doors, like, you know. It is a bit of a, like, yeah, stepping yeah, yeah, stone. Yeah, so. uh, it's one for the CV. There's also spargle queens, like asparagus queens. It's a whole thing, a German thing. This a very, is German, very German thing. See, this is why we don't cover European politics. It's yeah, too this, complicated. This is actually very important <laughs> to German politics, is, is, is this <laughs> aspect of the various queens that still exist. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to talk about European politics, and we try to be as comprehensive as possible i think between the four of us because not only is there me and rob we also have yulia and nick we kind of have our areas of expertise yulia is our like eastern european expert and nick is very comp- uh, competent in like the history of like uh, that late 20th century military juntas and fascism in southern europe um yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, he has I don't know what my specialty is <laughs> your specialty is culture 100% it's culture like me showing you an ad of like a Fine Gael young woman saying remember Tamagotchi's and you're like oh right yes I get this now understand <laughs> this is this is a devil party um, 
That's Rob's special ability. Uh, Connecting the threads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll privatize air, but also look at this Funko Pop. Um, <laughs> well, we're going to get into that. Like, that is Fine Gael's turn now at the moment to being, like, the be kind party or the your personal hobbies party. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that'll come up in a minute. I think, like, that's probably rounding it up. Uh, just, like, what is, what's the focus going forward for you now? Is there, like, I know you'd mentioned German elections will be big this year, but what are the other big anticipated European events? Or is there even any years at all blotted out by coronavirus at the moment still? Uh, I mean, none of us would have predicted that Italy would have collapsed for the dumbest <laughs> reasons. Um... Yeah, I mean, there's, I guess the only thing you can really predict is looking at the electoral calendar, because um, not only do we have the German elections at the end of the year, we also have Dutch elections, Albanian elections, uh, Czech and Norwegian elections, um, all of these things that you would think are actually perfectly innocent because of how they're talked about in English media, but like, we did an episode profiling, like, norway's third biggest party and that is the only episode we ever had to put like a, a trigger warning in front of because right, if they Jesus. are monsters and they have done awful things and not everyone should listen to that episode but you know subscribe to the uh. podcast <laughs> <laughs> um do we have any other big events other than that rob um definitely the german elections i don't know i mean like i said we we've have maybe an uneven um path through european politics and news but we plan to cover everything eventually so yeah, right. I, um, we we've I think we've haven't spent quite enough time on France again just because we haven't had enough personal well, uh, connections year, or guests. But there's um, presidential elections coming next year, so you know I think we'll get around to everything eventually. Oh yeah, that's the plan. And and then I do try to like we do occasionally just have an odd episode where we will fixate on like an incredibly tiny country just because it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, I recently enjoyed our episode in Estonia. Um, that was fun because Estonian politics is just what if we paid companies to be here and then um, got rid of all other taxes that would this okay. will this will work <laughs> this will definitely <laughs> work. not far from the Irish model oh like, no it's definitely not actually if you want if you want to see Ireland in a couple of years it's to look at Estonia <laughs> <laughs> all right I think that'll wrap us up for the European section of this conversation and for those who want to listen to us having a chat about Irish politics you can jump on over to the corner Spady feed as we're going to do another episode now which will be linked in the episode description so I'll close this one off and just say thanks a million to Kieran and Rob for joining us Thank you so much.